0: Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. On American Glutton, we have had a few guests who follow a carnivore diet, And it's a bit controversial in some circles. Today, we have one of the premier experts in this area, Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients. You can find him at carnivoremd.com or carnivoremd on Instagram. I hope you enjoy Paul Saladino, welcome to the American Glutton podcast.
1: It's such a good, such a good day to be here, brother. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah i I have lots of questions, and I've talked to a number of people who who do carnivore, and uh, but we haven't gotten into like the sciencey aspect of it. So I'm really excited to talk to you about that, just so I can understand it more on a scientific level.
1: It's super fascinating stuff, and. My my research journey with it has been really, really engaging. So I'm excited to share it. Yeah. You talk
0: about a dirty carnivore and a clean carnivore. I, listen, and I want to tell you, I've never done carnivore. I've done keto and I had a version of keto which I considered to be dirty and a version which I considered to be clean None of this was scientific. This was all just kind of my own creation, you know. If I was going to eat nacho cheese and hot dogs, I was doing a very lazy, dirty keto and probably wasn't going to lose weight, which was my intended consequence for doing keto. And I just want to know, like, right off the bat, this is something you talk about, right? Dirty carnivore?
1: Yeah, I do think there are more and less let's say, ancestrally consistent ways to eat an animal-based diet. I mean, most of what I'm interested in here here is how we recreate the diet of our ancestors, how we understand what a truly or as much as possible species-appropriate diet for humans is. And I think that within the framework of carnivore, we're talking about an animal-based diet, a diet that is mostly or entirely based on animal products within that broad framework, it's real easy for humans to do all sorts of things that I think are not very ancestrally consistent at all. I think that if we look at the way our ancestors ate animals and which plants they selected and which plants they shunned, that gives us a pretty good idea of how to create what I might consider to be a clean carnivore diet. Specifically with regard to eating animals, what I'm thinking of is eating nose to tail eating all the organs in the animal as well. So though this offends our delicate Western 2020 sensibilities, it's really common in indigenous cultures, in the recorded anthropology and ethnography literature, that when our ancestors would hunt animals respectfully, gratefully, they would then eat them in their entirety. They would not waste anything. They would eat the connective tissue. They would make broths and bones, eat the bones or the bone marrow, Eat the brain and the the liver and the heart, all the organs of the animal. They would not just eat the backstrap. They wouldn't just eat the ribeye. They would eat so much more of the animal. And what's so fascinating about that is that there are unique nutrients contained in these different organs. And the nutrients in the different parts of the animal complete the nutritional picture for humans. Something really fascinating arises when you eat animals in that way. And that is that all of the nutrients, all of the vitamins and minerals and cofactors that we need to thrive as humans are contained in an animal when you eat that animal, nose to tail. That's a pretty interesting thing that you can have one food, that you can hunt an animal with your tribe and get essentially everything you need to thrive as a human. There's a little bit of nuance there, there's definitely some seasonality, but all of the vitamins we need, all the nutrients we need, all the proteins we need, all the cofactors we need, all the minerals we need can be found when you eat the animal nose to tail. The same cannot be said if you just eat the steak. So my idea of a clean carnivore diet is eating animals nose to tail, eating liver and heart and kidney and spleen. And if we can't do that, if we're not willing to eat those organs, then getting a desiccated organ supplement, like a pill that you can take or a capsule that has these organs encapsulated, but getting the organs to complement the meat And also considering that at certain times of the year, our ancestors might have included seasonal fruit in their diet for a source of carbohydrates. I think that's also something to consider as well. And getting things like bone broths, collagenous tissues. That's, in my opinion, a clean nose to tail carnivore diet. Nose to tail being the key part of that. The, The dirty way to do it would be just like hot dogs and only eating steak. I think that when you do that, you're not recreating the way our ancestor did it, and you're missing a lot of nutrients. It may be very easy for people to do that. and short term, I think it can work okay to just eat like beef and salt and water or just eat ribeyes or just eat muscle meat. But I think long term, that's going to put humans into a number of nutrient deficiencies that can be harmful for us. And also in terms of the clean versus, quote, dirty juxtaposition, I do think it's important to consider the way that that animal was raised, both from an ethical perspective and a nutritional perspective with a clear indication that grass feeding, grass finishing, regenerative agriculture, I know you've had Rob Wolf on the podcast, yep. you know, that type of an animal is eating an animal species appropriate diet that's going to be much healthier for humans than a clustered animal feeding operation, a CAFO or a factory farmed animal of any sort, whether it's a ruminant like a cow or a chicken, a pig or other type of animal like that. Is that a reasonable juxtaposition for you of those different things?
0: Yes, totally. And and it's so much more in depth than my kind of uh, base. Like, you know, I, I thought of my versions of keto as like the convenience store keto versus like going to a supermarket and actually preparing something intentionally
1: mm-hmm.
0: or, you know, going to a steakhouse or a rotisserie chicken restaurant or wh- whatever it is. But you know if if i'm on a road trip and i stop to get gas what am i going to eat at the gas station and and that largely I had no good results from but I don't think you know it was also kind of lazy this what you're talking about is is so much more in depth even than I was thinking I I do have a question because a lot of the times I see and and again I haven't really read studies on carnivore but I, I really like what you're talking about and I do think that when I when I look at you know when I look broadly at uh, history and stuff like that. I can I can find instances even today of uh, civilizations that were all animal based. Like that's that's where the people were getting all of their nutrients. And historically, I go back and there's loads of instances where you can spot this. But the one thing that I am I question, and this is all like looking at social media and looking at carnivore through the social media lens is cheese. When I think about our ancestors, I don't know how far cheese goes back, to be honest with you, but it can't be – it doesn't certainly go back as far as when I imagine everybody eating carnivore or just uh, you know true hunter-gatherer times that people were not making cheese back then. How Where does cheese fall into this?
1: That's a good question. So for most people that I have worked with and most people that I've seen – A number of the proteins in all sorts of dairy, whether it's fermented dairy like cheese or yogurt or even just milk, even if it's raw milk, specifically the casein and the whey can be quite immunogenic for people. And I think that if we really look at what our ancestors have been eating, it hasn't been a whole lot of dairy. Maybe occasionally they would get an animal that was nursing. Uh, calf. But generally speaking, I think dairy was a very small part of our diet. And I don't think that dairy is something to make a significant portion of any carnivore diet. So there's a little more nuance. It's not just animal foods necessarily. It's really the animal foods like I was talking about earlier with regard to nose to tail eating. It's the animal foods that would have made up the majority of our diet. And so from that perspective, What we're really thinking of is meat and organs, connective tissue, and not so much dairy. That's a really rare food for humans. So I think you're right. I think a lot of people are not going to do well with cheese. Personally, I've experienced this. I had eczema and asthma. I struggled for a long time to iterate around my diet and understand what was causing those. And really what I discovered was that it was both a number of plants and also dairy that really triggered my immunologic underpinnings of my own autoimmune disease. So I definitely think that some animal foods, specifically egg whites and dairy, seem to be the most immunogenic that we would not have eaten regularly as humans evolutionarily can create problems for humans. So I don't think that most of us want to make dairy a big part of our diet. The other thing that I'll mention at this point is just that I also hope to expand the lens of this perspective. I want the listener to really understand the way that I'm thinking about this ancestral human diet. I really try not to be dogmatic about it. My point with the work that I'm doing is not to convince everyone on the planet to stop eating all plants and to eat only animal foods. It's to really help them understand two or three critical things. The first is that animal meats, really red meat and animal organs are central to the human diet and have been for millions of years. They're integral to optimal human health and have been incorrectly vilified for decades based on bad science. So red meat and organs, critical for human health, vilified incorrectly by bad science. Number two, plant foods exist on a toxicity spectrum because plants are rooted in the ground. They do have toxins. And if we ignore this, we are foregoing, we are forsaking a powerful tool for those who are not thriving. And if people understand which plant foods are more and less toxic and leverage that with making the majority of their diet well-raised animal foods eaten nose to tail, that is going to bring them to great health. I think that a lot of people can eat some plants and that there's a spectrum of toxicity in those plants. And once we can talk about that too, which plants I think are more and less toxic. And some people like myself will want to eat entirely animal foods and completely exclude plant foods. But I also have a framework in the book for people who want to eat some plant foods for color, variety, texture, entertainment. Sure, you can do that. Let me help you understand which are the least toxic plant foods because ultimately I just want people to be well and experience life with as much quality of life as possible. It's not dogmatic adherence to only animal foods. The third piece is really important. Most people will already know this, but processed vegetable oils are the scourge of modern times and religious, rigorous elimination of those is going to be critical for any dietary approach to work. And so when I hear you going to a gas station when you're traveling, I think a lot of people probably end up in that situation, but literally there is almost nothing in that gas station that is not full of processed vegetable oils and those are going to short circuit human biology in a massive way. So even if you ate animal products from a gas station and they were enriched with canola oil or soybean oil or a processed sugar, like those are really not going to steal. They're not going to be good for you. They're not very clean foods. They're not real foods. So it does consider that we have to consider that a little more intention uh, with this type of diet that we have to. If we're going to do those things, we need to realize like, that's not going to be a great health-promoting thing for humans if you need to do it so you can not you know, digest your, your stomach on the you know, trip to Albuquerque or wherever. That's fine. But to, ideally, we want to be eating the better quality foods and prioritizing the red meat and organs, understanding that plants are on a spectrum of toxicity, cutting out the most toxic ones to whatever degree we prefer, and then really religiously avoiding those processed vegetable oils. That's the key with the sort of framework. And sure, part of that framework is going the whole way like I do, and just eating animal meat and organs. And I do eat some honey. We can talk about that. Um, but a lot of people don't need to go that far and can still, you know, garner massive benefits. Another way to think about my work is I've kind of jokingly told my friends, I'm basically the anti-broccoli crusader. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there saying like, okay, weed is bad for you. You know, Stephen Gundry is saying beans might, might not be good for you. Lectins aren't good for you. But I don't know if there's many other people saying leafy greens hate your guts like leafy greens are horrible for you and so i'm really trying to extend that paradigm and help people understand there are a lot of foods we think of as quote healthy that do not like us and are not promoting human health at all and that so many of the foods we think of as unhealthy red meat and organs have been incorrectly villainized does that make sense totally and there's
0: so much to talk about. Let's take it uh, kind of one at a time. First, I want to say uh, I haven't eaten at a gas station in many years. This was just, <laughs> this was just an example. I just want, I don't want people to think that this is a current situation. You bring up a
1: really important topic here, which is that culturally, a lot of us are quite unfamiliar and even averse to including organs in our diet, which is really tragic because of the unique nutrient content in these organs. We've all been told things like liver is the filter. It's full of toxins. and Nothing could be further from the truth. If you talk to any physician, they will tell you that the liver is a place of detoxification. In the liver, we have phase one, phase two detoxification systems that prepare compounds for excretion in the poop and the urine. The liver doesn't store toxins. The liver is a repository of so many good vitamins and minerals because it is the powerhouse of sort of cleaning up But it doesn't keep them there. It doesn't store the toxins. It gets them out. So the liver is not a filter, but it is full of great nutrients. As you're suggesting, the heme form of iron, the most bioavailable form of iron is in the liver and the spleen. Those two organs are the That's That's absolutely going to be something that would help with anemia of any woman or man who's experiencing it. But certainly women have it more than men these days because of the menstrual cycle. There's iron, there's zinc, there's copper. There's manganese, there's folate, there's riboflavin, there's choline, there's vitamin K2. So many of these nutrients are not as richly represented in the muscle meat. If we're only eating muscle meat, we're missing out on these nutrients in the liver. And other organs are similarly valuable. Even things like heart has lots of coenzyme Q10. Intestines, which very few of us eat, have really important peptides that can help with gut healing. And so how do we get these in our diet? Certainly eating them fresh is probably the best way, but this is one of the reasons that I built a desiccated organ supplement company. It's called Heart and Soil. So I wanted to try and do this for people. So what we do is we take these organs, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and we desiccate them. We source from grass-fed, grass-finished cows in New Zealand, and you can put them in a low-temperature dehydration environment called desiccation or freeze drying, and you can get them in the capsules. So we should definitely get some of these for your family. I think that they would much more likely be much more likely to take a few pills of beef organs, which have spleen and heart and liver in them per day, than they would be to eat these organs, right? Uh, it's been a total failure on my part. <laughs> it winds up being
0: a gigantic portion of organ meat for me, it's good for you. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's perfectly fine. I I'm I'm trying to eat very lean right now, and and for the most part, that stuff's pretty lean. But like, I've gone so far as to try and like really make because because I, I actually I, I I'm not saying I've ever been walking down the street and been struck with a craving for kidneys or heart, but I have for liver. Liver to me is a delicious thing, and I will try to you know cook it with onions and bacon and make it really. Palatable or, or the most palatable version I can imagine it to be and they just none of them they 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 will all suffer one bite and then kind of that will be that
1: yeah and so this is where things like the desiccated organs in pills can be super helpful. Six of the capsules is about one ounce of organs so that's a really that's a really good start toward getting them the nutrients they need. I'm, I'm just excited about helping people get more of these organs in their diet, however they can do it. If they can do fresh, great, but I hope that the capsules will serve a go-between. So yeah, we should get some for your family, and I think it'll be really helpful. But overall, I think having as many of the organs in our diet as possible is going to allow us to achieve pretty darn good health. Like I said, they're really sources of, the, of these nutrients that are hard to find elsewhere. And people may say, well, can't I get those nutrients from plants? And the really fascinating answer is No. So many of these nutrients, and I talk about this in the carnivore code, are really not well represented in plants, nor are they very bioavailable in the small amounts they do occur. Things like riboflavin, riboflavin is vitamin B2. It doesn't get nearly as much press as folate, but it's a critical B vitamin for methylation cycles, for energy, for mood, for all kinds of detoxification processes in the human body. And most of us in the West are deficient in riboflavin because it really only occurs in reasonable quantities in liver and heart. It doesn't really occur in the plant kingdom in any particular amount. And the list goes on and on. There are so many nutrients that occur in animal foods that don't even occur in the plant kingdom or are essentially negligible amounts. Things like creatine, carnitine, choline carnosine, anserine, taurine, vitamin K2, the full spectrum of menaquinones, B12. The list goes on and on. It's so crazy, man. It's like there are all these nutrients that are critically found in animal meat and organs that just don't occur in plant foods. And so if we're missing the organs, and especially if we're missing the organs or the meat as well, we're just not going to get these things. I mean, you see this over and over. There's a study I talk about in the book that's fascinating. You can take vegans and vegetarians and give them creatine which they are deficient in and they get smarter. They do better on memory recall and card sorting tasks because the brain and the body needs creatine to hold on to phosphate groups to manage energy around ATP. But if we don't eat meat and organs, we're going to get deficient in some of these nutrients. This is never talked about. You know, instead, red meat and organs, red meat is like vilified today. It's crazy. These are the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet.
0: Don't go anywhere we'll be right back As far as the deficiencies go, if we're not taking vitamin supplements and we're not getting it through these meats and we're just deficient, what is the what is the effect this can have on us? And and I I guess I guess my my broader question is obviously my big issue with food has been that I wanted to lose weight and and i have done lots of different uh things and i've had different goals i i wanted to be a cyclist and and so i had to get really small for that and then i wasn't happy and so now i'm trying to retain lean muscle mass and i have my diet pretty program but as far as somebody who's maybe coming to this and has a health question what what is who is this mostly dev- designed for and i and i hear that you're saying it's kind of for everyone, it works for everyone. But like, who would be the person that you would hope to get your hands on that could see the biggest change from instituting something like this? I think
1: there are really two groups of people. There are those with autoimmune disease, which can run the gamut, and those who are trying to lose weight and become more metabolically healthy. In the latter group of people, we know that obesity is often associated with prediabetes and metabolic syndrome. And that, I think, is a major driver of most chronic disease in this country. Certainly, it increases our risk of heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, dementia, so many problems that, that we all hope to avoid in our lives. And so I would really think this is so valuable for people who are looking to improve metabolic health, diabetes, pre-diabetes, who are obese, and also for those with autoimmune disease. Because I have seen so many incredible stories of autoimmune disease improve with exclusion of the most toxic plants and the most toxic vegetable oils. That's my own story. I had eczema, which was pretty severe, and asthma. And there's lots of stories like this that people cut out some or all of the plants that are triggering this. I mean, I've worked with clients who had head-to-toe eczema that were severe. I have two twins uh, that were doing it, and their their eczema improved like 95%. It's just incredible what happens with these autoimmune conditions. And it could be everything from eczema to psoriasis to... Hashimoto's thyroiditis, to inflammatory bowel disease, to IBS, or even things like you know, lupus or Sjogren's. It's, it's incredible what it does in terms of immunologic programming in the human body. But those are the two big groups of people. So it's very interesting that you're interested in weight loss. And I think we should definitely talk about that for people because I, I could make some suggestions. I think there are a few pieces that people miss with weight loss that confuse them. And maybe if it's okay with you, I can comment on that.
0: I, absolutely i I think the the one dude i've had the the longest conversation with who who has done carnivore is uh my bunny carnivore mike foxtrot and and he was really dealing with some more more mental stuff that it cleared it up for him really well and so i I just almost thought of it and looking and I'm not saying that uh weight loss isn't a medical condition. I'm just saying I, th- I have thought of it more in terms of dealing with autoimmune stuff than I have with weight loss. Um, but so, I, yes, I'm very pleased to hear you talk on this.
1: Well, they're all kind of connected too. So this is really fascinating. In mainstream medicine now, we are using drugs that treat metabolic dysfunction like metformin to treat autoimmune disease. And my point in saying that is that weight loss or weight gain is absolutely connected with autoimmunity. It's all kind of in this immunologic inflammatory spectrum. So so many of these things we think of as different, but obesity is really triggering a lot of the same mechanisms that are going on under the surface when someone has an autoimmune condition. Weight loss in general, I think, is such a problem for our culture. 70% of people are, are overweight and obese now. It's just, it's profound. 75%, 70 and 75% of people overweight and obese, 40% of US Americans with diabetes. Wow, that's just full blown diabetes. What about pre diabetes? So, what is causing this? Is that true? Is the figure 75%? Obese and overweight, yes. Wow. I yeah. Didn't know. So, that's two groups, right? So, overweight is a less stringent criteria than obese, right. having to do with BMI. But it depends on what BMI you're looking at. But yeah, obese and overweight, so I'm combining two groups, over 70%. It's crazy, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's crazy. And so weight loss, I think, is often misconstrued. And at the risk of sounding as though I'm oversimplifying it, I'll I'll offer the listener and and use some of my real thoughts on this. Just like we were talking earlier in the podcast about this evolutionary recreation, this evolutionarily consistent way of eating – and an evolutionarily inconsistent way of eating. I think that so much of what we're doing today is evolutionarily inconsistent, and it's driving obesity, but not so much in the way that most people are expecting me to talk about. Sure, processed foods and sugars are not a great thing, but I'll tell you this, and this is probably gonna be surprising to you. I think the major driver of obesity in this country, if you have to really pin it down, distill it, what is driving this? is processed vegetable oils and the excess linoleic acid that is found within them. So people might be familiar with this, things like corn, canola, soybean, safflower, peanut oils. These, I think, are the real metabolic culprits. They have this very interesting way of signaling our body to get fatter. And so you're saying to me, it's interesting to hear you say, I'm trying to eat lean meat because I'm trying to lose weight. This is one way to do it, but I suspect It's not so much the fat, it's the linoleic acid that is driving your weight gain. This is my hypothesis, that it is the vegetable oils. And so, yes, you want to avoid fat, but really what you and your listeners want to do is religiously, rigorously avoid vegetable oils, avoid sources of linoleic acid, which is an omega-6, 18-carbons, polyunsaturated fat. That seems to be an evolutionary signal to our body that winter is coming. And you should get fat, whereas the reverse appears to be true. And this is going to get a little technical and granular, so I apologize. That's okay. But stearic acid, which is an 18-carbon saturated fat found primarily in things like the kidney fat of animals, which we call suet in cows, that kidney fat is very high in stearic acid. And linoleic acid versus stearic acid have what appear to be totally opposed mechanisms in the human body. Stearic acid appears to signal to our body that you have abundance because you have killed an animal and it allows our body to lose weight, We lean down with a saturated fat. Your listeners are just scratching their heads now. These are like, what? What is he talking about? It's crazy. But it's true. There's really good evidence that in humans, supplementing or eating foods with stearic acid and 18-carbon saturated fat lead to mitochondrial fat burning. They turn our mitochondria on, whereas linoleic acid does the reverse. It's going to kind of make us get fatter. And you can understand this from an ancestral lens. Evolutionarily, when would we have eaten foods that were high in linoleic acid? These are things like nuts and seeds. This is in the fall. This is when we may not be hunting animals as well. And if we're not hunting animals, we are relying on high linoleic acid foods. Our body is going to get fat. And that is going to protect us for the winter. But what are we doing in 2020 We are constantly giving our body a signal every single day because we are eating way too much linoleic acid to be fat. That winter is coming, winter is coming. Even in the summer, winter is coming. Even at the end of winter, in the spring, winter is coming. And our body is constantly just in this sort of fat storing mode because of way too much linoleic acid. Where is this omega-6 fatty acid? It's primarily in vegetable oils, but vegetable oils are in so many foods we eat that we don't even know about, right? My friend went to the grocery store and he was just looking at the ice creams the other day. He said, I didn't even know most of the ice cream had canola oil in it. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, that's crazy. Ice cream has vegetable oil in it. Certainly all the processed food we eat has vegetable oil. But I'm wondering in your life, how many of the foods you eat have linoleic acid, rich fatty acid components? How many foods you eat may have added corn, canola, soybean, safflower, sunflower, peanut oils in them? Do you have some sense of that?
0: Oh yeah, it's almost nothing. I I, I I mean, when I say I'm eating very lean, I'm measuring my fat by grams. And and while I'm not in my normal life, if I was if I was doing maintenance, I might use a little bit of some kind of a vegetable oil to cook something. But but I'm not eating a lot of processed food. I'm eating mostly boiled chicken breasts. But I do I do have a question. About these fats, and I and I'm sorry, I've already forgotten the first one. Not omega six, but the one that you get from kidneys. What's that one called? Stearic acid. Stearic acid Steeric is from this, suet. It, is this yes? And I have I have used suet. I think it's a great thing to wrap like a a really a pointless cut of meat, like a filet mignon, in something like suet to cook. So I have done that. But can you
1: buy this like you buy an omega three? Well, you can. So you can buy suet and then at Heart and Soil, which is the, the supplement company that I've built for the desiccated organs, we're actually coming out with a supplement that is a high stearic acid tallow in a pill. So you can get it kind of like an omega-3 in a pill. It's a high stearic acid. Yeah. It's not commonly available because we don't think of animal fat as as valuable as it really is, but it's something you can get more and more now. Right, And, and I- you can just ask the butcher for suet. And I would be curious for you, the experiment would be are you going to gain weight? I suspect no. I bet you could add suet back to your diet and get more fat. Because hearing you eating boiled chicken breast kind of breaks my heart a little bit, honestly. Even it's <laughs> well, like listen, so, that's it's like so crappy. It's horrible. I like, know can, it's not fun. Need to fix this for you. That's the worst. That's like a body. That's horrible. Listen, man. dude, I'm
0: at ten percent body fat, and I that's just, great. I just, I have a few pounds to lose. So I'm not, I'm not deviating from the course I'm on. However, that said. I cannot wait to eat suet. I love, I
1: love fatty meat. I do not think suet will cause you to gain weight. So once you get to your 8% or whatever you want, and I'll just say this for the listener. I'm between 7 and 8% body fat, and I eat a lot of suet. I do not eat any linoleic acid, but I have a total six-pack of people seeing pictures of me. And I'm just saying that for like my experimental model. Like I eat a lot of fat. Certainly, what you are doing is one way to lose fat. It's essentially rabbit starvation, depending on how many carbohydrates you're eating. <laughs> uh, if you're just doing like a protein sparing modified fast, if you're only getting protein, I don't know how many carbs you're getting. No, I, that- I
0: get, I get, I get about um, right now. I'm on a, I'm on a cut, and my, I'm on like the second evolution of my cut because I've had to go down in calories a little bit, and I'm getting about 200
1: grams of carbs a day. Okay, so if you're getting that many carbs, you're not going to get into rabbit starvation. That's good, but boiled chicken breast, man. I think here's my here's what I believe, and you'll have to let me know what happens, and you can let your readers know in the future. Once you get down to 8% body fat or whatever your goal is, I don't know if your goal is a whole lot lower than that, I bet you could add back in suet and you would not gain any weight back. You would stay super lean with fatty meat in your diet. Now, the problem would be if you put back in linoleic acid, that is going to cause you to gain weight. Ethan, do me a favor. Don't do Throw it. Throw out the vegetable oil in your house. Don't ever cook in that stuff. Don't cook anything in that. Okay, good.
0: This is is good. Now, I have two things. You've
1: brought up so many things. Like, you're talking and
0: I'm literally flashing to something in my kitchen. So I want to make sure I get all these questions answered for myself and hopefully for the people listening they have these questions too. I have heard that, you know, I I do think of occasionally – because I will get to the end of my day and actually be under in my fats and take a handful of uh, uh, omega-3s. Uh-huh.
1: And,
0: I'm, and I feel fine doing that. But every now and again, I'll have like a nice big piece of salmon and think I'm getting my omega-3s a little bit more naturally. Or, and, but, but then somebody told me farmed fish, the fat
1: actually is becoming omega-6s somehow. Is that true? Well, you don't want to eat farmed salmon. So just so the listeners know, Atlantic salmon is a total hoax. There's no such thing as a wild Atlantic salmon. You do not want to be eating farmed salmon in general because it's full of PCBs, so polychlorinated biphenyls and all kinds of other things like that. So you don't want to be eating farmed salmon or farm fish of any kind. And if you look at the fatty acids in that fish, it's likely to have more omega-6, more of this linoleic acid because the fish are fed things that they're not supposed to be eating. It's totally possible. If you look at chicken and pork in 2020, ancestral chicken and pork, which is probably kind of a funny concept, like what is a What does an ancestral chicken look like? The amount of linoleic acid in their fat is five to six times less than the amount of linoleic acid found in chicken and pork fed corn and soy today. So another way that humans can get excess linoleic acid and more of this signal for their fat to grow is by eating chicken and pork that's fed corn and soy. And without, at the risk of making this sound super complicated to people, this is one of the reasons that I advocate for making red meat ruminants the majority of your diet, at least in the beginning, or if you really want to kind of troubleshoot this. You can get grass-fed, grass-finished meat much more easily. And even meat that's fed grains, which I'm really not an advocate for, even red meat that's fed grains is going to have a small amount of linoleic acid compared to chicken and pork. But you're absolutely right. A farmed fish is going to have a different composition of fatty acids. I'll just make a comment about omega 3. What seems to be very important is the omega 6 to omega 3 ratio, not the absolute amounts of omega 6 and omega 3. And so most Americans get way too much omega 6. And so it looks like omega 3 supplementation is beneficial. But if you lower the amount of omega 6 in your diet, you don't need mega doses of omega 3. And I actually think they're harmful for humans. There's very good evidence that too much fish oil supplementation really, most of these supplements are pretty damn oxidized. If you are taking a fish oil, I challenge you to bite that fish oil. It's going to taste really crappy and fishy. That is rancid fish oil in your mouth. That is not something you want. If you want to get omega-3, eat fish. But even so, you can get all of the omega-3 you need from well-raised eggs and grass-fed, grass-finished, or even regular ruminants like cow's. There's really interesting studies that I was looking at just this morning. And they took kids. These are really unfortunate kids. These are kids that have fatty liver. We call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD. And they changed the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, meaning they lowered the linoleic acid way, way down in these kids. And when you do that, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio changes because you're dropping the omega-6 into the basement. The kids did so much better. They lost like 20 to 30% of the hepatic, free fat. So they their fatty liver like completely resolved when they dropped out the omega-6 linoleic acid in their diet. The kids lost visceral fat, which is the fat inside the peritoneum, and they lost subcutaneous fat. So there's a really important thing here. like Even in kids, that linoleic acid seems to be this incredibly important signaling molecule. Excess linoleic acid is imbalancing the ratio. And so many people, I think, get misled thinking that there's pump in omega-3. Well... If you're eating a standard American diet level of omega-6, you might, but it's much better just to lower the linoleic acid. I am not a fan of fish oil supplementation. I think most of it is rancid, and there's good evidence that it worsens lipid peroxides. It worsens the oxidation of lipids, which is associated with bad cardiovascular outcomes. So does that make sense? It's kind of a little nuanced switcheroo
0: I did on there. Yes, it does. I, I just mostly go like I know I have to have some fat in my diet uh-huh. every day. And uh-huh. and I do I do actually eat a fair amount of extraordinarily lean ground beef, um, which you would probably hate. And even with that, that's the highest kind of fat I get in meat and on a day that I have that I don't need to supplement but on a day that I come in super under on my fat I know I have to take some and mm-hmm. I just reach to fish oil now if I had the same kind of uh macro makeup in a pill with uh, made out of tallow or or suet I would gladly take that you know we'll get you some of the fire starter from hardened soil man we'll get you some of that great uh, yes and I'll take it and uh yeah. and report back to you don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I have a couple of concerns and I just want to paint you the picture because you do not live in Los Angeles. And so wherever you live, it might be so totally different. But there is a a certain thing I want to, I don't want to fall into here because it, it, it just it boxes people out. It creates a, a a gateway for people who are starting on their journey, and I don't like creating a bunch of excuses for people, especially if one of them is financial. So, if you know here, in order to eat and my wife's, I have t- my wife has tons of friends that eat in the exact way you're describing. It is quite a bit more expensive to, especially in Los Angeles, to find grass-raised, pastured stuff, you know, stuff that hasn't been messed with at all. And I want to know if you had just uh, your average Joe who's not going to be able to double their, their financial output, who's actually looking to start a diet, hoping it will actually save them some money, how do they do your plan? Great question.
1: Thank you for this. So there are a couple of things to consider here. When people think about my carnivore diet, they think I could never eat like that guy. He eats ribeyes all day. Ethan, I eat $8 a pound stew meat all day long, $8 a pound, which that might be too expensive for some people. But the meat that I eat is organic, grass-fed, grass-finished meat from Belcampo in Los Angeles. And it's stew meat. And it's 8 to $10 a pound. So first of all, all the meat that I eat is like the cheapest cuts of meat, right? You can do really cheap cuts of meat. You can get ground beef for 6 to $8 a pound that's grass-fed, grass-finished. So I understand that for some people that's going to be untenable even at that level. But the other thing to consider is that organs like liver or kidney or heart, if you want to eat those, a lot of times butchers will give those to you for $5 a pound or less. If you walk into a butcher, they might just hand you some suet for free. So at this point, you're getting to be a lot more affordable, especially if you're not spending money on alcohol, restaurants, or snack foods, which you will not need. If somebody is really, really strapped and they really want to do this in the most affordable way, like I said earlier, the nutritional composition of a cow, whether it's fed grass to finish or grain to finish, is not a whole lot different. What is different is that a grass-fed cow, I think, is going to be cleaner. It's going to have less of the atrazine, less of the glyphosate, less of the things that may come with the grains that are fed to the cow. But nutritionally, if people can only afford grain-fed meat, go for grain-fed red meat. And you can get grain-fed red meat for 2 to $3 a pound for ground beef. And that's super affordable. And then get liver from the butcher or do the desiccated organ supplements for mustard and hardened soil. And you'll be looking at, I mean, you could probably eat for less than $10 to $15 a day. Is that—is that an affordable level or should we try and break it down a little bit cheaper than that? I mean, I guess I'm trying to understand, Like, to me, $10 to $15 a day seems like a reasonable investment for most people on their food every month, because I really believe as humans, we have to prioritize food to some level. And does that sound reasonable to you? I I mean, yes,
0: no, it, it, it it totally does. I, and in fairness, I eat on average two and a half pounds of meat every day, and there's no way I'm coming in anywhere near 10 to $15. No shot. It's way more than that. When I think of, um, grass fed and pastured and all of that, I think of, Erwan, and I think of really bougie yeah. rich people, and I think Not well, you know no, you know what I mean though, and yeah. i don't want I don't want somebody who's like who's eating mostly fast food and part of the reason they're eating that is financial to go like well, that's that's now out of my league too, but I think what you're saying is super valuable because stuff like liver, like you know at the end of the day, you can't acquire a taste for something and and I don't believe unless you're, you know, eating some kind of fancy calves liver or something. But beef liver is is very
1: cheap. All those organs are pretty cheap. Um, oh, five dollars a pound. You know, somebody might eat a few ounces a day. Uh, the desiccated organ supplements are a dollar a day, a dollar twenty five a day. Like pretty cheap. Um, yeah, that no, cheap. that all seems
0: fair. That all seems fair, and 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 taking the caveat that it must be pastured and fed some certain diet. That kind of really levels the playing field because you can go to any supermarket and find very inexpensive ground beef. That I know exactly. for sure. Like and yes. and, and if you're saying and but you you do you are saying that you have to add in some other stuff, right? You can't just live on ground
1: beef. I would not live on ground beef. I mean if you did ground beef and added in liver and eggs, you'd be doing pretty good. I mean that's a good little basic diet, right? Now the other thing I'll challenge people with is And I don't want to be judgmental of anyone's financial state, but so often when I have these conversations with people, I ask them, how much do you spend a month on your cell phone? And most of us need a cell phone to live, but like, how much do you spend on gas? How much do you spend on your cell phone? How much do you spend on your car payment? How much is your rent? How much is your cable? And then really the kicker is, how much do you spend eating out and on alcohol? And the reason I'm doing that is just to gently nudge people and say, what is your health worth to you? Because for me, There is nothing more important than the fuel I am putting in my automobile. It's like we're all given a freaking Lamborghini. You get this corporeal body, and it can do these amazing things. And then we go to the gas station and put, like, the cheapest fuel in it. And we're going, what are we doing? Like, you got a Lamborghini, man. Put the good stuff in. Put the good stuff in your car and then understand kind of how to allocate your funds. Now, I realize there are a lot of people who don't go out to eat, who aren't spending money on alcohol, who may not be able to afford $20 $20 a pound ribeyes, which is why I think the other cheaper cuts of meat are valuable, but incorporating fat and organs and these you know, organ supplements is going to be, it's very affordable and the diet's going to get very nutrient rich very quickly. The other thing I want to mention to people, because I haven't really talked about this yet, is that a carnivore diet doesn't have to be zero carb. There are ways to do it that are including carbohydrates. I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast. I don't think we have to eliminate all carbs lose weight as you are finding you have 200 grams of carbohydrates in your diet per day carbohydrates do not cause diabetes in the setting of metabolic dysfunction caused by linoleic acid carbohydrates can fan the flames of insulin resistance but they do not cause the metabolic dysfunction so if somebody's saying this and they're hearing this and they're saying i could never give up my apples or oranges fine You can definitely include fruit. That would be like a tier one carnivore-ish type diet that I talk about in the book. Totally reasonable. I have a few tablespoons of honey every day. I feel better when I do this, and I think of honey as almost like a quote carnivore card. I don't like to get dogmatic or think about it that way, but it's kind of from bees, right? Like honey is kind of a carnivore carbohydrate. You can make an argument if you want to be super. It's definitely not. Yeah, it's not vegan. It's not, and if it's not vegan, then it's pretty close to mine, right? Honey's not vegan, right? So uh, there's ways to do it. And again, I don't think we have to be dogmatic about it, but there are all sorts of approaches. And people could also do, like, I'm just thinking of a very simple carnivore diet, that carnivore ish type diet that might be ground beef, eggs, liver, avocado, and some berries. And I think a lot of people could do that. It would be very affordable. Or if people want to do more, you know, different cuts of meat, they could do that. But it's also totally reasonable to include the less toxic parts of plants, which I think are specifically the fruits things like berries or avocado, you can totally include that in your diet. And when I talk to people about that, they think, wait a minute, I can do a carnivore-ish type diet, eat the least toxic parts of plants, and I can do berries and avocado or squash or an apple occasionally. That sounds more reasonable. So I want to make it inclusive. I don't want to make it dogmatic. And I don't think those carbohydrates are harming people, especially if we can get rid of those vegetable oils, that linoleic acid. That's the real driver. That's a real important thing to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Let's talk
0: about olive oil. What, what, what is your stance on olive oil? That, does, that was not in the list of lino, linoleic oils that you listed off earlier.
1: Right. So olive oil is mostly oleic acid, which is an 18-carbon monounsaturated fat. The important thing to mention about olive oil is that the majority of olive oil out there is cut with vegetable oil. It's a corrupt industry and it's very hard to find a good olive oil. If you have a really good olive oil and it's all oleic acid, it's probably way better. But what are you using it for? I actually don't think that as humans we should be really cooking in oil or heating oil. Now, I think a lot of people are going to say, whatever, I'm going to heat an oil, it's fine. I'm not a fan of doing that, but if you want to use an oil, I would say use tallow. If you want to use an oil that's liquid room temperature, a good olive oil is better, but I do think that humans need some stearic acid in their diet. And though we do make oleic acid, we make monounsaturated fats in our body, it's important to realize that too much of that in the absence of stearic acid also looks like it could be problematic or it could cause weight gain. So the jury's not out on olive oil for me yet. A lot of avocado oil is also cut with vegetable oil, so be careful of that. I'm generally not a fan of the liquid oils in general, they're they're really oxidized a lot. They're problematic. Uh, a good olive oil is going to be way better than vegetable oil, but I would still prefer tallow.
0: Okay,
1: I, some uh, one of
0: my wife's wacky friends gave me a jar of camel hump oil, um, <laughs> which sat in my pantry for years, and me and the kids just gazed at it in awe that that was such a thing. But uh, that's available too, I imagine. That's on the list of okay oils.
1: I'd have to look it up. I was just gonna look it up on uh, Amazon. I'd have to. It depends what the camel is fed, right? And you know what the composition of linoleic acid is in camel hump oil. Yeah. So if, I imagine that if the if the camel is, it, it looks like camel hump fat is is a solid at room temperature, which means it's probably mostly saturated. But yeah, you could look at how much linoleic acid is in camel hump oil yes
0: I called it oil you're right it was a camel hump fat it was definitely it looked like a wax candle and yeah yeah you know that's probably fine okay well I'm have to tell my kids that uh, maybe at some point they're going to be eating something like made with hump fat, fat. <laughs> all right so when you describe the uh, carnivore-ish diet that really does sound cool. Closer to – like listen, if I'm a caveman and I know a berry is delicious, there's no way I'm not eating a berry if I come in contact with a berry. Right. Exactly. And so that that makes sense to me that if we're really trying to figure out what we ate back then, I don't know about our farmed vegetables how – I don't know how we came into contact with broccoli and one day went like, well, we're just going to plant a bunch of this.
1: I don't think we did. I think broccoli is a recent invention in the last couple of centuries. I just don't think our ancestors ate a lot of vegetables. I don't think that they did that kind of thing. And if they did, they mostly detoxified it. They were fermenting it. A lot of the fermented foods that we see in indigenous cultures are built-in detoxifiers. We have so many ways of detoxifying plant foods today. We grind them, we cook them, we ferment them, we pressure cook them. These are things that help to detoxify the plant toxins. But it just argues the fact that there are a lot of plant toxins in these foods. And a lot of times we can't fully detoxify them. And ancestrally, I don't think we would have eaten many of these foods unless we were absolutely starving. Yeah, seasonally, if there's a berry, I'm going to pick that berry. But generally speaking, the idea with the carnivore code and with this way of thinking is, hey, remember... Animal foods are central. That's what your ancestors were hunting more often than not. They weren't really saying like, let's go pick some bitter leaves that mostly give us stomach aches and that'll be a great dinner for us. No, they're like, let's go get a kudu.
0: Right. Let's eat some blood. Pretty much. <laughs> and, feel, and feel immediately vital. I, yes. I, I know that feeling. Yeah, it's true. And I think about the diet you described and think about avocados and ground beef and... That sounds delicious to me. I mean, I would like some onion. How do you feel about um, kimchi? You said fermented. Fermented is okay?
1: Fermented is better. But remember that kimchi is a brassica vegetable. So kimchi is cabbage. I do talk about this in the book. The fact that cabbage is a species of vegetable that has a series of toxins in it called isothiocyanates. When you ferment cabbage, a lot of those isothiocyanates, or specifically their precursor molecules, glucosinolates, are degraded. So, a sauerkraut is going to be more easily digested, less toxic than raw cabbage. The concern I have with most kimchi for people is the spices. If you look at the capsicum spices in that, these that's kind of spiciness, that's a toxin effect. And a lot of people are going to say, "I love spicy food." Well, Does your gut love spicy food? These are just tools I'm offering people to find better health. Most of us know that if we eat something super spicy, we kind of feel it when we poop. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's irritating to the gut. And that's been shown in cell culture that these capsicum spices, the peppers, the hot peppers, and even things like tomatoes from the same nightshade family, solanaceae family, open the lining of the gut. They open the the gap junctions in the gut. So There are plants that really just piss off our gut. And most people have heard the term "leaky gut colloquially, the idea that, hey, if your gap junctions, if those junctions between your cells are not tight, your body is not happy and all sorts of problems ensue. So in a survival situation, yes, fermenting cabbage into sauerkraut is better than raw cabbage. Would we have made it the majority of our diet? No. Is it okay to use as a condiment? Yes. Be careful about kimchi with those other capsicum spices. And ultimately, it depends who I'm talking to and what their goal is. They get to define their quality of life, not me. If somebody's goal is resolving an autoimmune disease, I don't think it's a good idea to have those spicy foods in there. Those can open the gut lining. That can be a problem. If you don't have any autoimmune disease and they don't seem to bother you, okay, fine. But for some people, they can be real triggers. Okay, great. Now, if your
0: goal is to deal with autoimmune, is there a version of this that isn't lifelong that you have as a program to handle autoimmune and then introduce foods back into or or is that not the way this is done?
1: Well, that's always the goal, right? The the goal for me as a physician, really, for what you're doing, for what most of us are doing is to offer tools that allow people to increase their quality of life. If people feel like their quality of life is richer when they eat more foods and variety, absolutely, you can reintroduce. For some people, there are just a lot of plant foods that are always going to trigger them. But I think one of the things I describe in the book is what's called the carnivore code reset. It's just a 30-day carnivore diet or carnivore diet plus honey or just a strict carnivore diet. That's no carb. And you kind of simplify everything. And then you see how you do, and then you start to reintroduce foods one at a time, starting with the least toxic plant foods. So it's definitely a goal and something you can try later. For some people, you never really get to the point that a food is not going to trigger you. I've been trying to reintroduce things like dairy into my diet. We talked about cheese for years. And every time I do it, I get eczema every single time. Because we all know that milk is delicious, but milk just may not be part of my ancestral blueprint anymore. I don't know that I necessarily need it for nutrients. I get calcium and bone broth, um, things like that. But sure, you can try and reintroduce. But I think there are a lot of foods, like the capsicum spices, that are probably always going to be damaging for people, for certain people. But a lot of people can introduce some things. Uh, I do think that there is importance to that spectrum of plant toxicity, though.
0: Right. Uh, And and Okay. One more question: What about fiber? Because and, and I'll be I'll be completely upfront with you. I don't love vegetables. Like I I wouldn't mind vegetables covered in butter or cheese. That sounds delicious to me. Like eggplant parmesan, I think of as delicious. Eggplant on its own, I'm not interested in really. But like you know, if the way the Lebanese make eggplant, I'm blanking. Baba ganoush, I love that but that's got other stuff in it too. My my point is this, the way I eat vegetables today is almost like I don't count them as anything. I don't count them as carbs or or towards my calories at all because I don't eat enough of them really to do that, but I think of them as I got to get fiber, I got to get vitamins out of this. That's that's how I eat vegetables. So it will be like A very small – I'll just reach my hand into a bag of broccoli and just eat that uh, as though it's a vitamin, which you are saying very clearly is not good for me. But I do notice a difference in going to the bathroom on days or days uh, following having enough fiber and days when I
1: haven't had any. Interesting. So there's a couple of points in there to unpack. Okay. Okay. From the vitamin mineral piece, uh, there's really no nutrient in broccoli that you cannot get eating nose to tail animal foods. People think like you need broccoli for vitamins and minerals, like really false. You don't. <laughs> like. And the next thing is that that broccoli is a brassica vegetable, same family as the cabbage, and it is full of compounds, those glucosinolates that turn into isothiocyanates, which are actually harming you. That broccoli doesn't want to get eaten. So there are really no nutrients in that broccoli that make your body any better. As you're suggesting, you probably don't get many calories in that broccoli. We can unpack the whole sulforaphane and phytonutrient thing if you'd like with the broccoli. Some people believe that sulforaphane, which is found from glucosinolates, specifically glucoraphanin in broccoli is beneficial for humans. But I disagree with that and think we have the whole paradigm way upside down with regard to those plant compounds. They're clearly defense chemicals. So the sulforaphane thing is quite quite twisty and turny, but I'll try and break it down and then I'll talk about the fiber. We believe that sulforaphane is good for humans because it's a, quote, antioxidant, but nothing could be further from the actual organic chemistry truth. There is not an organic chemist or biochemist on the planet worth his or her salt that would tell you that sulforaphane is an antioxidant. It's actually a pro-oxidant. So what sulforaphane does when it is in your body is it steals electrons from molecules creating free radicals or lipid peroxides. That's completely different than what you've been told. The other thing to understand is that there are no molecules in broccoli that participate directly in human biochemistry. There is no biochemical process in which any molecule in broccoli serves a role other than a vitamin or a mineral. There are no phytonutrients in broccoli that serve a role in your biochemistry uniquely. You don't need broccoli to run your inner metabolism workings. Sulforaphane is actually this defense chemical. It is formed when you eat the broccoli. There is actually no sulforaphane in broccoli. Like I said, it exists as a precursor, which is glucoraphanin. When you eat broccoli, you chew the broccoli, and the glucoraphanin combines with an enzyme called myrosinase, and out comes sulforaphane it's a booby trap. The reason sulforaphane is not in broccoli is because it is such a pro-oxidant molecule that it would harm the broccoli plant, that it would run around the broccoli plant creating free radicals within that plant. The broccoli doesn't want to do that. It says, hey, if I am going to get eaten, I'm going to sacrifice myself and make a booby trap. So why have we been told that broccoli is good for us with sulforaphane specifically? sulforaphane comes into our body. It acts as a pro-oxidant. It triggers what is called the NRF2 system in the liver. That NRF2 molecule dissociates from a carrier molecule called KEEP1, moves to the nucleus, activates the antioxidant response system in the human body, the ARE elements. Those increase the production of genes involved in antioxidant defense endogenously in the human body, glutathione, glutathione peroxidase, these kinds of things. Our body has an endogenous system of antioxidants. The problem is that that is not the only thing sulforaphane does. It also circulates in your body and has toxic effects, which are often ignored. Specifically in the case of sulforaphane, it inhibits the absorption of iodine, the level of the thyroid, and a number of other problematic things. So people may say sulforaphane is beneficial because of hormesis, hormesis. A little bit of a toxin is good for you, except it's not really because it has all the bad collateral damaging effects. And as I elaborate on in the book, there's really no evidence that you can't get adequate glutathione just by living your life well. We know this. You can increase glutathione in your body through exercise, sunlight, heat, cold, sauna, cold plunge, all that kind of stuff. Even fasting will serve as what I call an environmental hormetic xenobiotic molecules, these exogenous molecules. This is what I call molecular hormesis. The problem with molecular hormesis is that generally speaking, the collateral damage has been left out of the equation. We are always taught or sold this idea that these molecules are good for us. And then in the, in the narrative, the bad side effects of these molecules is ignored. So my assertion within the book is that it's a negative net benefit, right? That there is, it's a redundant benefit. You can get all the glutathione you need just by living well. And you can avoid all the bad side effects of sulforaphane by not getting that toxic molecule in your body. It's a booby trap, in fact. A plant is not trying to be helpful to you. It's saying, get away from me. I hate you. Stop eating me. Broccoli doesn't want to get eaten. And we should realize we've got the equation all wrong. We're missing all of these collaterally damaging side effects. And we can get all the benefits just by living well. There are tons of other molecules like this that I unpack in the book curcumin, resveratrol, they're all the same. You can find a benefit. And then if you look in the literature, you can find tons of problems with these molecules, tons of side effects. You know, when you go to the doctor and you get a medication, hopefully you haven't done this in a while, you go to the pharmacy, you get the medication that has a package insert, a whole list of side effects from that medication. Yeah. That's what's always ignored, the package insert. These molecules from plants are just the same as that. And many of the molecules we use in Western medicine are the exact same thing. They are derived from plants. Aspirin, metformin, digoxin, paclitaxel. They're plant molecules. A lot of them are plant defense molecules. If that makes sense, I'll move on to the discussion of fiber.
0: Yes, and I, wa- I want to just say, like, as far as vitamin go, vitamins go, I, it, you know, this is kind of just to appease my wife. She's tried to feed me vitamins before. I never noticed anything, and I'm not a proponent of them. But if I eat a handful of broccoli, I can say, like, look – or show her, like, look, five-hour energy <laughs> yeah. drinks say they have vitamins in them, too. You know, I don't notice anything. And so if I eat a bowl of rice, I notice my energy goes up. If I eat a hamburger patty, I notice I feel good. I, n- I never notice from eating a handful of broccoli one thing or the other except for its, its effects with fiber. So that's right. that's what I'd love to hear.
1: Yeah, yeah. So – the fiber story is interesting. There's a whole chapter in the book unpacking this. Now, it's hard to know exactly what's going on in your gut. And like we didn't talk about your macros a little bit. It sounds like you're eating very low fat, which may affect things in a certain way in your body, depending how many other carbohydrates we talked about. Well,
0: here's an interesting thing that I, I don't even think I've I've brought up on this, but it could be a great thing to talk to you about. Um, I have no gallbladder. and hmm. And so there was like a a tipping point. I could eat a certain amount of fat. The minute I crossed some threshold, which, which changed, seemed to change from day to day, I would immediately have diarrhea. Right.
1: Okay, yeah, we can talk about that too. So the gallbladder is a repository for bile. Bile is made of bile salts, bilirubin, and cholesterol. The bile salts are important in the digestion of fats because they emulsify the fat. They form micelles around the fat and allow pancreatic enzymes to work on that. Now, in people without a gallbladder, sometimes the liver has bile ducts that still come from the liver to the duodenum at the intersection with the pancreatic ducts. But if you don't have a gallbladder, sometimes you're not able to control the flow of this bile. And if you eat too much fat, your liver could release extra bile into the small intestine. Extra bile in the small intestine will cause diarrhea because those bile acids will be excessive. They will not be absorbed in the small intestine. They'll move through the ileocecal valve, and they will cause a cathartic reaction in the colon. So this is a real problem for people. And so that's probably what happens. If you tip over the fat threshold sometimes without a gallbladder, it's problematic. Um, and you can sometimes, uh, you know, work on that by taking ox bile for supplemental bile or doing the fat more slowly or working on the types of fat. But that's, a, that's an issue. One of the things that's interesting is to ask you why you don't have a gallbladder. Presumably, you had cholelithiasis or cholecystitis in the past, and it was surgically removed. I don't know what either of
0: those two things that you just said are, and I'm going to not try to repeat them because I'll butcher them. (laughs) But uh, yes, it was uh, quite 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 a long time, 25 years ago, I had it removed.
1: Yeah. So what's very interesting, and I talk about this in the book, is that I think a lot of gallbladders get taken out unnecessarily. In order for your body to move bile acids into the bile canaliculi in the liver, that's a choline-dependent process. I think that a lot of gallstones, which lead to cholelithiasis, which is our fancy word for gallbladder stones in the gallbladder, cholelithiasis happens when there is too much cholesterol, not enough bile salts in the bile. They The cholesterol precipitates and you get bile stones. That is usually due to a choline deficiency. I don't know how you were eating 25 years ago, but my suspicion, my guess would be that you were not getting enough choline. So choline is again found in liver and egg yolks. And I think that we could fix so many gallstones by changing people's diets and getting more organs in their diet. And we wouldn't need to lose gallbladders. Anyway, that's my aside there. Okay. <laughs> so back to the fiber story. If you actually look at the medical literature, constipation is not the absence of fiber. I poop every day, and it's beautiful. I'll spare you and the listeners all the photographic proof. Um, <laughs> I've pooped every day for two years, no problem. In the very beginning of carnivore diets, some people do get diarrhea, and that's because there is excess bile as the small intestine is adjusting. Most people then progress to normal stool every day. Again, I don't have any fiber in my diet, and I poop every day. There's actually good medical literature to show that the removal of fiber for some people leads to resolution of constipation. So here's my question to you Is, and this is getting pretty uh, pretty detailed, I hope this isn't over, your listeners are like, great, we get to hear about Ethan pooping. Oh, so that's great. <laughs> is it that if you eat less fiber, I poop less? So I poop a smaller amount, but it's still easy to pass the stool? Do you find that your poop is just smaller with less fiber, or is it actually harder to pass? No, I have no, I have no trouble passing it.
0: I just, it just, it's yeah, a bigger poop. Yeah, it seems to be like a, a job more well done.
1: Okay, but here's the thing: I'm not sure that it is because I poop a small amount every day, like. When I ate a lot of fiber, I would poop two to three times a day. And I always walked out of the bathroom kind of smug, like, I just dropped a big turd, (laughs) right? You know, it's kind of satisfying. You're like, man, I just dropped a bomb. But when you have less fiber, you just have less poop. So I poop like one small poop a day and it works fine. If it's not easy to pass, the bulk of the stool is not necessarily a healthy thing for you. If I were to reincorporate fiber into my diet, I would see bigger poops, and I'd be like, "Ha ha ha, big poop!" But that doesn't mean it's healthy to have a big poop or a small poop. It's, and I'm not—I don't actually don't think that you are evacuating any less fully with a smaller poop. It's just that you will have less bulk to the poop with less fiber, and we actually see that in studies in the medical literature that if you add fiber to someone's diet with constipation, it doesn't actually solve the pain, the bleeding, or the use of laxatives. But the removal of fiber has been shown. There was a great study that I talk about in the book, 60 people, 20 people fiber as usual, 20 people moderate fiber, 20 people zero fiber. And in the zero fiber group, 100% of people with idiopathic constipation completely resolve their constipation. So there's really not a lot of good evidence that fiber is what's causing us to poop. My story argues for that. Thousands of them on the carnivore diet. Now, more fiber equals bigger poops, but that doesn't mean you're not emptying fully when you don't eat the fiber. You just are used to having a big poop, and you're like, "I just want to win the poop award." That's my opinion.
0: Yeah, I respect that, and and I think there is. I certainly can relate to some portion of that as truth. I, I want to win the poop award. I like <laughs> you want to the win poop the poop. Award.
1: Award. <laughs> you're like, wow. You like call your kids and look at the size of that one.
0: Yeah, n- not quite, but I'll describe it to them.
1: <laughs> you know? So and then it goes further with fiber because people always have questions like what about fiber and colon cancer? It's never been shown to prevent colon cancer. There was a landmark series of trials, 1999, 2000, New England Journal of Medicine, increasing fiber in the human diet did nothing to prevent the recurrence of colon cancer or in this case, precancerous adenomas in the colon via colonoscopy. So fiber doesn't prevent colon cancer. Fiber doesn't prevent diverticulosis, which is the formation of little pouches in the colon wall. In fact, there's a great case series, or it's not even a case series, there's a great study uh, that I referenced in the book showing that those, by colonoscopy, those people who ate more dietary fiber actually had more diverticulosis, more of these little appendices in the colon wall. So for anyone to suggest that fiber prevents diverticulosis, that is not supported by the medical literature at all. And the last thing is the gut microbiome. If you've got some sort of GI folks in your tribe, there's really no evidence that fiber increases alpha diversity of the gut microbiome or that removing fiber decreases alpha diversity of the gut microbiome. I've tested my microbiome multiple times on my zero fiber diet, and it's very high in diversity. My diversity score is very high. And like I said, clinically, how can we argue with someone who has like no bloating, no gas, no pain, has a moderately sized poop every day on a carnivore diet and say, your gut is unhealthy. It's like, well, my gut works great. I don't fart anymore, which is fantastic. It's easy to be around me in a movie theater in a small space. And how can you say my gut floor is unhealthy? It's totally great. It's working just fine. What we see more often than not is the people who have IBS or IBD, so irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel syndrome like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, so many of those cases get massively better when we remove fiber from the human diet. So that's a super fascinating conversation.
0: Yeah, I listen, I I have been planning on um it was going to be maybe as a portion of my next maintenance period or somewhere down the line I'm definitely planning on trying this. Uh and I and I and I just want you to know I look so much more forward to it now than I had because I really was thinking like I'm gonna get really sick of ribeyes and, and ground beef, but but adding in all that other stuff sounds great, you know, and, and even a little bit of avocado and berries, that's wonderful. That's a that sounds like a nice day of eating to me.
1: Yeah, reasonable, right? Less toxic plant foods, most nutrient dense foods, get the organs or get the desiccated organ supplements. Yeah. I think you're going to thrive. I'm excited for you. And
0: throw suet on everything. Yes, you should. Yeah. Well, Dr. Paul, thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely.
0: All right. I'm going to hit you up for uh, any questions I have while doing this.
1: Okay, absolutely. You totally should. And if people have questions, I hope they'll reach out to me. At, the best place to find me is heartandsoilsupplements.com. You can send me an email directly, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul at heartandsoilsupplements.com, and I'll be happy to tell people troubleshoot if they have questions. And at heartandsoilsupplements.com, you can also check out those desiccated organs we were talking about if you guys need more organs in your diet.
0: Yeah, now I'm going to get some of those for my for my girls because I, that is something I've tried a number of times to get them to eat on, yes. on their cycles, and and they just can't do it. But taking it as a pill would be easy. Yep, absolutely. Awesome, Paul. Thank you so much. It's my
1: pleasure, man. Let me know if I can support you with anything else, okay? Will do. Thank you. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: And now for some Q&A. This question comes from JT. He writes, It's taken a while to finally take the leap and change my way of thinking. When you took the first step towards food appropriation, did anxiety hit you? Meaning, did you get overwhelmed or get the feeling of missing out? If you did... How did you combat that? I feel like a healthy mindset is as helpful a tool as anything, and it's hard to get past the mental anxiety I feel. Any pointers? Thanks for the question, JT. Yeah, I, w- I will say I remember mostly this feeling happening towards the beginning when I would do really extreme diets, and I would get a physical sensation, but also this mental anxiety of uh, almost just feeling like things were being taken away from me. And they were. Food was being taken away from me a number of times. I, I, I was setting these limits myself. But I, I know, I I think that that's the feeling you're talking about. I would just get through it kind of a moment at a time when that feeling would get really strong. I would tell myself that this is a moment in time and this feeling will not last forever. And that, that would be true. Eventually that feeling would go away. Sometimes I would go out for a walk and look around and... and kind of reground myself or do some exercise or move around or find something I could be in control of because I I feel like it's that, um, that feeling of powerfulness and being in control of something can mitigate that feeling of anxiety. That's what I've found for myself. Um, but yeah, I I totally, totally can relate to that. But now when I diet, it's, I'm not doing anything that extreme, And when I go into a a cutting phase of my diet, it's not the same feeling. That feeling I remember associating with very extreme diet. You might want to try just, I don't know how extreme of a diet you're doing, but I have found I don't get that feeling anymore. Now, it could also be that I've been dieting for so long that I've just um, beaten that feeling. But my diet now is the reductions are not so massive that that i feel like that anymore but if you have a huge amount of weight to lose and you're going to do something really extreme and or even if you don't if you're feeling that way and your diet isn't that extreme you can get through that moment you can go for a walk you can look around you can You can write about it. I found writing about this stuff and and just getting my feelings out of my head and onto a piece of paper, that's also helpful. So that's what I would recommend. Thanks for your question, JT. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, you can submit it to americanglutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.